Hello and welcome back to the SA Pioneering Podcast. In this episode, we hear from Steve Acethorpe, who shared a talk on rewilding the church at the Salvation Army's Emerge Pioneer Gathering in May 2021. Steve works for the Church of Scotland as a mission development worker based in the Highlands. He has spent half his Christian life in one of the world's fastest growing churches and half in one of the fastest declining. He is a researcher, writer and coach. In his first book, The Invisible Church, Steve reflects on research among Christians who are not engaged with a local church congregation. His latest book, Rewilding the Church, uses a powerful metaphor from ecology to offer a bold and provocative vision for the church. As always, there are some great conversations and questions being raised in this talk, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you'd like to carry on the conversation, please join our SA Pioneering discussion group on Facebook. To find it, search SA Pioneering Podcast on Facebook and it should be there. So now let's hear from Steve and his talk on rewilding the church. Let's start off with a, with a big bang. Uh, 1980, Mount St. Helens, long dormant uh, volcano in Washington state, uh, exploded with devastating power. 300 mile an hour blast of superheated air and debris flattened the surrounding forest. The top 400 meters of the mountain was blasted away and fire, molten rock rained down. And within a few minutes, a dense column of ash punched 25 kilometers into the sky and began to drift to earth over the surrounding states. Nearly 250 square miles of forest, lakes, rivers, meadow was devastated. And one of the first ecologists to visit the area following the eruption described it as a scene of absolute destruction and barrenness. She said it gave the impression of total lifelessness. Two years after the eruption, Forest Service ecologist was flying over the area that had been decimated and then carpeted in, in ash when he spotted a splash of color. He asked the pilot to land the helicopter nearby and he discovered a small cluster of prairie lupin, which was a, a surprise discovery on, on several counts. These, these plants are not considered uh, a pioneer species. Um, the term used for plants which are the first to colonize environments when natural processes have been disrupted. They're a ground-hugging, slow-spreading plant with, with heavy seeds that are not easily dispersed by the wind. And over the next years, the Forest Service paid attention. Four years later, within 200 square meter study area around that first pioneering plant, they counted 16,000 lupins. And three years later, the number had doubled. Over the years that followed the eruption, those who took the time to observe witnessed the gradual but resolute return of life. After a couple of decades, there were about 150 species of wildflowers, shrubs and trees. And along with that regeneration of plant life, squirrels, mice, shrews began to return, each accelerating the area's recovery by 
collecting and storing seeds, burrowing through soil and, and luring predators back into the ecosystem. Today, dense thickets of, of alders and willows, some of them three to five meters tall, line the banks of streams that crisscross the, the pumice plain below the peak. And there's a herd of elk that graze the area. The air is full of bird song. So what is the blink of an eye in terms of the history of landscape? In that short little split second, life has bounced back because at its heart, nature has this incredible capacity for recovery, for regeneration, for growth, what has been called the bounce back ability of, of nature. So um, all very interesting and encouraging, you might think, but what on earth has this got to do with, with Christian faith and with church? Well, stick with me and allow me one more story um, so this is Yellowstone National Park in the Western uh, US. And having been absent from that region since the 1920s, in the mid 1990s, a small population of wolves was reintroduced. So for 70 years, the, the elk population, for example, had been free to graze unimpeded. Uh, great for the elk, but the vegetation on which they fed was constantly cropped and regeneration of, of some trees just never got a chance. Riverbanks that had previously been stabilized by root systems of trees and bushes were crumbling. Following the reintroduction of the wolves, not only was the elk population diminished a bit, but their behavior and the behavior of other species changed. The threat posed by wolves led to changes in their feeding habits. As elk numbers and the amount of browsing declined, species of plant and tree that had been heavily suppressed for decades began to thrive. Changes in the course of rivers, an increase in the population of beavers and bisons, changes in the, the composition of soil, uh, like the ripples on a pond when you toss a stone in, the effects have gone wider and wider, deeper and deeper, what ecologists call trophic cascades, where one change triggers multiple domino effects throughout an ecosystem. So again, all, all very interesting perhaps, but so what? Uh, in the next few minutes, I, I want to introduce you to the idea of rewilding. Uh, or wilding. Different people prefer one term or the other. I'm, I'm going to stick with rewilding because it's the term I've used in my own writing. Uh, it's, it's the same thing. Those who prefer the term wilding say that rewilding can imply a sense of going back to something. But I assure you, whichever term you prefer, it's always about going forward into a future which to a significant extent is unknown. And, and unpredictable. Rewilding in the context of, of ecology is about letting nature take care of itself, uh, enabling those innate processes for growth and regeneration to shape the land and sea and, and everything on them or in them. It's about humankind taking our foot off the neck of nature and allowing the, the healing of, of damaged ecosystems, the restoration of degraded landscapes. 
But what's it got to do with, with God, faith, and the church? Well, a growing number of people are finding in the idea of rewilding and the principles at the heart of it a powerful metaphor for what God is doing in the church. And therefore, because we are the church, a compelling call for us to rediscover the adventure of faith, to refocus on the radical call of Jesus, follow me, and a recognition that authentic church is what emerges as we do that together. So just a, a quick word on the importance of metaphors. You know, when you think about it, pretty much everything we know about what God wants us to be and do as his people together, how to be church, comes to us in the form of metaphors. In, in his seminal work, Images of the Church in the New Testament, Paul Menear explores 96 distinct metaphors from the New Testament and suggests that there are, are more. We're told we're, we're citizens of a, of a city, we're, we're a body, a temple, the bride of Christ, a vine, a flock, a household. Your own denomination has taken the New Testament metaphor of church as an army. The list goes on, all metaphors. And the thing about metaphors is that they trigger the imagination. A good metaphor engages the imagination, casting the familiar in a new light and revealing the previously invisible or unconsidered. Or in the words of everyone's favorite Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, a metaphor proceeds by having an odd, playful and ill-fitting match to its reality, the purpose of which is to illuminate and evoke dimensions of reality which will otherwise go unnoticed and therefore unexperienced. I like that, an odd, playful, ill-fitting match. I'm not saying, hey, look at rewilding. It's just, it's exactly like that in the church. Um, rather, I'm saying, hey, there's, there's something interesting here that triggers our imagination. The way a metaphor works is we put two things side by side that are fundamentally different, but we see there are points of connection or similarities. I think, think for example, about the metaphor I, I explore in Rewilding the Church. At the heart of nature is this capacity for regeneration and growth that rewilding releases. And at the heart of the church is what Paul describes as the indescribable power, the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead, resurrection power. Just as an authentic, sustainable landscape is, is what emerges when natural processes are allowed to have their way, so church is what emerges as we focus on following Jesus and using our gifts together. When we, we look at churches as individual denominations and networks, one picture emerges, often one of decline actually at the moment. But when we look at the whole church, the Christian community in all its expressions, including those bits that look nothing like church in the traditional sense, a different picture comes into focus. 
one in which it appears that God is reversing the domestication of the church, bringing a, a new, richer biodiversity into being and challenging us to join the adventure. So, so the question is not so much how do we rewild the church, but rather God is rewilding the church. Are we going to get on board with that? I've mentioned the idea of, of rediscovering the adventure of faith. And you know, when you think about it, Jesus has been described as the wild Messiah. Uh, C.S. Lewis referred to the spirit as the great interferer. And Walter Brueggemann, again, uh, reminds us that we live our lives before the wild, dangerous, unfettered and free character of the living God. So if church is predictable, dare I say, it, if church is ever boring, we, we have to ask whether it's really emerging out of our response to that radical call of Jesus, follow me. Advocates of rewilding point out that uh, traditional conservation efforts have often focused on preserving what is actually a man-made landscape, or, or at least a landscape resulting from substantial human intervention. But in many cases, that's what we've learned to love. So, so that's what has become our baseline, the kind of landscape we want to preserve. But what we've been preserving has, has often been a, a, an impoverished, threadbare shadow of what it might be if allowed to thrive. Have we often been guilty of having preconceived ideas of, of what church should look like and then managing things towards that end or, or even fighting to preserve it. So I suggest we need um, pioneers and leaders whose focus is on inspiring and supporting and coordinating people in their following Jesus and seeing what emerges from that because that is church. You know, traditionally, we've often said that a great leader is someone who can, can cast a compelling vision, uh, a picture of an alternative future that inspires and motivates people to participate in, in fulfilling that vision. In the context of rewilding, the outcome is unknown. We need leaders who are comfortable to not know where they're going and can inspire others not towards some predetermined out end point, but rather to, to join a genuine adventure, a journey with the wild, unpredictable, yet supremely good and absolutely reliable Jesus. So a metaphor. We put two things that are fundamentally different side by side, and we see if there's some points of connection or similarity. So what I'd like you to do is you, you've heard some initial thoughts about rewilding. Have you made any connections with anything in your own context? Have these ideas of rewilding triggered anything in your own context? 
so uh, yeah, the, the thought that perhaps rewilding is a helpful metaphor for what God is doing in the church and for what we are being called to participate in. It, it came to me about four years ago. Um, I was writing a, a previous book, this book, The Invisible Church, which is based on research I'd carried out among Christians who were not engaged in a local church congregation. And I was trying to write the final chapter in which I was looking at all the evidence and trying to do what's sometimes called empirical theology. So looking at the data prayerfully and, and asking the question, what is God doing here? Trying to discern where the, the various kind of trajectories are taking us. And at the same time, I was collaborating with the cartoonist, uh, Dave Walker. Some of you have probably seen some of his cartoons around. And when I told Dave um, what the data was saying about what the church, the church with a big C, if you like, you know, the whole Christian community, what it was looking like these days, he came up with this cartoon. And you see there, there's the kind of big ship um, going down, and it's called the Church Unchanging. And it's surrounded by this proliferation of the small uh, and diverse. You know, some people are clinging to wreckage that's maybe uh, come from the, the big ship, and, and others are, are on different kinds of, of vessels. And at the same time as I was kind of trying to write that final chapter and, and Dave was coming up with these cartoons, I was also part of a book club in the village where I live. And we just happened to be reading this book called Feral, which is all about the, the idea of rewilding as, as an environmental strategy. And when I looked at all the evidence about how the church was changing shape, somehow through the lens of rewilding, it seemed to make sense. As, as I read about the idea of rewilding in the natural environment, again and again, there seemed to be parallels, connections, similarities that I found really stimulating and, and encouraging and inspiring. I began to see that another way to see the process depicted in that cartoon, so a process which is characterized by a a diminishing of, of the big and institutional expressions of church and, uh, and a, um, a proliferation of, of the small and, and, and simple uh, was as a movement from a monoculture towards a richer diversity. So from an expression of church that's been primarily institutional towards church expressed in a multitude of ways. I began to see the changes in the church as being much less about decline and much more about transformation. Uh, a lawn once well manicured, but now looking rather threadbare, giving way to a wildflower meadow with some new species that have been brought in on the wind, some, some of it being the result of just allowing what was already there deep in the soil, but maybe had been suppressed for whatever reason to flourish. And, and some deliberately planted, introduced. Part of the rewilding story in some parts of the natural environment is the reintroduction of what are known as keystone species. Uh, I mentioned the wolves in Yellowstone's, but Yellowstone, but it could be 
uh, beavers here in uh, Scotland and down in Devon. Scientists have been amazed at how the impact of bringing back even a single species sends ripples throughout the whole ecosystem, influencing not just those closest in the food chain, but changing the soil, the vegetation, the course of rivers. In a relatively short period of time, everything changes. In the book, uh, Rewilding the Church, I suggest that we need to consciously reintroduce Jesus individually, into our groups, networks, congregations, denominations. Not that he's been absent, of course, but there is a sense in which we have sometimes attempted to control or domesticate. Rewilding is about letting the natural processes have their way and then seeing what happens. Rewilding the church is about allowing, inviting Jesus himself to challenge reshape, recreate. So rewilding, therefore, calls for a style of leadership that emphasizes releasing and affirming. Such an approach will lead to a flourishing of biodiversity in the church as the multitude of local expressions of the one church are shaped by the local context. And a vital part of that local context, of course, are the people that God draws together. So rather than a preconceived idea of church and certain key roles that are needed to make it happen, church is shaped by the gifts of the people God draws together. Cooperating with God in his rewilding of the church involves recovering a rhythm of patient listening and bold action as people discern together what God is doing in their context and what it means to be part of that. So we need leaders who model and encouraging prayerful listening and courageous action. Or maybe I should say courageous listening and prayerful action. We need to, to foster a rhythm that includes both listening and action, a cycle, a balance of the two, and to give constant attention to both. Otherwise, we either get bogged down in a kind of pious navel-gazing, or we get sucked in and, and carried along by frenetic activity that has no basis in God's guidance, is out of step with what the Spirit is doing. Listening is an active thing, and, and if our clear intention is to respond in obedience, then listening is scary, exciting. It's the heart of the adventure of the Christian faith because the thing about listening is that you don't know what you're going to hear until it's too late. Listening is a risky undertaking. Who knows where it will lead? Uh, I mentioned before that C.S. Lewis referred to the spirit as the great interferer. And uh, he also, reflecting on his early days as a Christian, said this, that this, he had this kind of revelation that there was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. 
And of course, we know that. And yet we try to do it. It's, it's our human nature. Our deep longing for independence leads us away from the radical adventure of faith towards a domesticated version. As Christians, we're, we face a constant choice between a life of unconsidered momentum or learning to listen with the inherent risk of hearing, well, who knows what? Rewilding in nature takes seriously the challenge of removing invasive species. Uh, those animals and plants often introduced sometimes inadvertently from another eco ecosystem that have a destructive impact on species and their relationships. They have a kind of dampening effect on natural processes, limiting biodiversity. So we need to be courageous in asking ourselves, are there parallels? Might there be parallels in the church? Some of those things should come into focus as we do the, the faithful, open-hearted, open-minded listening to Jesus that I've already mentioned. Inevitably, he will put his finger on things that need to go, need to change. In fact, that idea of invasive species chimes with the call in scripture to fix our eyes on Jesus and to throw off everything that hinders and entangles. In the book, Rewilding the Church, I highlight some aspects of church cultures that I believe constitute invasive species. I actually started, I had a really long list of things that came to my mind as invasive species. And, and as I reflected more and more and boiled them down, I came up with a very small number of things that I feel are, are, are at the root of, um, of some difficulties in our church ecosystems. One of them is busyness and a sense of frenetic activity that develops when we fail to discern our part in God's mission and therefore feel that we have to do everything. So rather than knowing what we should be doing and feeling guilt-free about all the things we're not doing, we feel we have to do everything. Uh, another one is traditionalism. Not, not tradition, but traditionalism. So tradition being the good stuff, the heart of our faith passed on from one generation to another. And traditionalism being an attitude that reveres the past or anchors us in the present. Rewilding in the natural environment also recognizes the amazing impact of reconnecting habitats. Our countryside has been chopped up into ever smaller islands by strips of tarmac and concrete fencing or, or just areas of land or water that are uninhabitable for, for many species. And in, in some countries, such as the Netherlands, where this picture's from, they have recognized the huge difference that reconnecting habitats can have. So when they build something like this that they call an eco-duct, uh, often has a kind of swathe of woodland or undergrowth on it, bridging a motorway, for example, it doesn't just join two habitats, it creates a different habitat 
which is not just bigger, but it's richer, where things can survive or thrive that previously couldn't. So with the church, the church is one. We know that. But we need to find ways to reconnect where artificial barriers to our experiencing our oneness have cut across the family. Now, that might mean strengthening interpersonal connections. Um, I talk in the book about the tradition of, of Anamkara in the Celtic tradition, soul friendship, those relationships of, of mutual support and accountability that used to be deemed essential to healthy Christian living, but which we, we lost somewhere along the way. Might mean reconnecting at local levels between denominations, or as I explore a bit in rewilding the church, reconnecting with those great streams of, of Christian history and tradition. Um, one way to understand this is through the metaphor of, of what is called daylighting. Uh, daylighting is, a, is an initiative that is kick-starting some rewilding type processes in the urban environment by opening up long-buried watercourses. You know, during the Industrial Revolution, for reasons of sanitation, partly to just conceal the stench, sometimes to enable the squeezing in of more buildings into already crowded towns and cities, rivers were covered over. Now, with the biggest rivers, it wasn't possible, but smaller rivers just disappeared from the urban environment. And daylighting is the process of reopening rivers to the sky, kind of peeling back their man-made coverings and reuniting rivers with life above and, and around. Um, projects like this one in, in, in Sheffield, where this long covered river uh, has been exposed again, not just associated with that bouncing back of nature, but also of social benefits, reduced crime, increased social capital has been uh, demonstrated in these areas. And in uh, Rewilding the Church, I suggest that we should rediscover some of what Richard Foster has called the streams of living water. So those great traditions that underlie our faith. At different phases in the history of the church, a renewed emphasis on one or other of these traditions has reshaped the church. Uh, aspects of the church's identity and calling that have been blind spots come into fresh focus. So the contemplative tradition highlights the centrality of prayer. The holiness tradition emphasizes the importance of the formation of, of Christian character. The charismatic tradition focuses attention on the spirit-empowered life. As different ones have gained uh, prominence, new manifestations of the church have arisen. Existing expressions have been reformed. Schisms have, have led to new branches developing. The social justice tradition reminds Christians of their vocation to be tra a transforming influence in every sphere of life. The evangelical emphasizes the foundational role of the scriptures and the incarnational tradition gives particular attention to how we encounter the invisible God in the visible world or the, the sacramental life. So these six, these great rivers of tradition underlie the whole of Christian uh, history. 
but we tend to put our roots down into one or two and ne neglect others. We live at a time when denominational edifices are crumbling. Recent generations have little interest in theological silos or ecclesiastical brand loyalty. I would suggest it's time for our own radical daylighting project, peeling away religious labels and stereotypes, opening up and reconnecting with all the streams that carry the riches of our faith from, from one generation to another. So to summarize, God is rewilding the church, inviting us to rediscover the adventure of faith. At its heart is a, is a reintroducing of or refocusing on Jesus. Just, of, just as advocates of rewilding urges to let the innate capacity for growth and regeneration at the heart of nature to, to have its way, so rewilding the church longs for what Paul called that incomparably great power, that resurrection power to, to transform the church. What might constitute invasive species in our context? Those things, cultural characteristics perhaps that limit biodiversity, that have a, an inhibiting effect, that what might it mean to throw off all that hinders in our particular situation? And finally, connections, the incredible, disproportionately effective impact of, of joining what has been separated has, has much to teach us. A friend recently read a book about rewilding as an environmental approach um, written by a, a respected scientist, not, not a Christian as far as I know. And among the quotes he shared with me was this one. Fundamentally, rewilding offers people stories of redemption, reconnection, hope and discovery. When I read that, I thought, yes, Lord, come, Lord Jesus create among us stories of redemption, connection, hope, and discovery. So a question to, to guide your reflection in groups now. I've mentioned the incredible impact that reintroducing keystone species can have. Uh, likewise, re the removal of invasive species and the liberating influence that has. And thirdly, I spoke about the disproportionate impact that reconnecting can have and suggesting that there are ways we can apply that at personal, local, institutional levels. So the question really is, how do any or all of these speak to you about your situation?